Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohegan people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. Hey, Bosch, and I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a recent Albany Common Council budget hearing for 2023. Then we hear some of Bernie Sanders' speech at the Labor Notes Conference back from June. Later on, H. Bosch Jr. invites Dr. Sorchinsky, Assistant Professor of Criminal Justice at St. John's University for this week's Triple E's segment. After that, November is National Picture Book Month, as well as Native American Heritage Month, and Bria Barthel gets us some book suggestions for young people on these themes. And finally, Marsha Lazarus talks with Rabbi Linda Motzkin about her current art exhibit in Saratoga. But first, here are the headlines. Okay. The Times Union reports that an Albany County Controller's audit says Sheriff Greg Apple used the money seized through criminal investigations, violated a state controller's opinion, guiding how that money should be spent. The audit found that funds were donated to the community-based organizations, sports programs, and town events which do not meet the criteria for law enforcement or criminal justice prosecution purposes. Apple responded that the opinion was 28 years old and out of date. He said, I see the need to fund youth sports programs and organizations to promote positive youth engagement. Owners of the Norlite Aggregate Plant and Hazardous Waste Incinerator are calling for dismissal of a pollution lawsuit brought against them last month, contending that the state has failed to specify which regulations have been violated. Norlite also says that the lawsuit relies too much on rules adopted in California, but not in New York. Okay, voters in Albany County, town of Bethlehem, voted Tuesday to preserve more than 300 acres of farmland and open space in Glenmont and Selkirk. The town has been talking to agricultural non-for-profits about potentially leasing or using portions of the land to start farmland incubator programs. A code blue alert has been issued for the next several days in Schenectady County as a cold snap hits the capital region. During a cold blue declaration, the county's homeless shelters extend their hours of operation to allow those who need shelter to remain indoors during cold weather. Temperatures are expected to dip into the mid-20s overnight Friday. Wow. And that's it for the headlines. Yes. Okay. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine listener-supported radio that builds community in the Troy and surrounding capital regions through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. On Monday, November 7th, the Albany Common Council meeting included the public hearing for the 20. 23 budget. Moses Nigel reports some of the highlights from the community responses and concerns expressed at the meeting. 
On Monday, the Albany Common Council held their bi-monthly meeting. There, they offered the public hearing on the city budget. Nearly every speaker spoke on one of two issues in the new budget. First, we'll hear the voices of the residents who spoke about the Community Police Review Board's budget request. The first speaker was Anita Thayer. The passage of Local Law J of 2021 by members of last year's Common Council was one of the most significant acts of this body ever. It was historic because the members of this body acted on their own initiative to address certain requests from the CPRB for additional authority. The Common Council initiated this new CPRB and it is the Common Council that has the responsibility to make certain that the CPRB receives the financial support it needs to successfully carry out its responsibilities in accordance with national best practices. The people of the City of Albany are counting on each of you to do what is needed to make the CPRB a success. The Council heard from Kevin Canazaro, a member of the CPRB. Time and time again, your voters have asked for independent, responsive, and effective community police oversight. Meaningful oversight, members of the Common Council, requires adequate funding. Uh, the mayor has made her position known in terms of the funding to the CPRB for this year. And as we've said to many of you, it's just not enough. The mayor provided a 1% minimum. Uh, she gave the minimum she is required to provide under the law. The process that's going on right now is not unique to the city of Albany. There's always pushback uh, in providing necessary funding for community oversight. And our hope is that all of you will find the fiscal, the political, and moral capital to provide this funding. I'm Melanie Trimble. I'm the regional director for the New York Civil Liberties Union in the Capital Region. I'm here tonight to express our support for the budget proposal for the Albany Community Police Review Board. Um, I've been observing and working with the board since 2003. It's time for the City of Albany to fully support the intention and structure of the CPRB. Full support means full funding. The city's police reinvention plan that was submitted to the governor's office includes 16 pages of recommendations for improving civilian oversight of the Albany Police Department. In these times when public trust of police behavior is at an all-time low, it is imperative that the city follows through on and lives up to the recommendations in that report. Arguably, one of the most important sentences in that plan can be found on page 55. It reads, quote, give the police review board sufficient powers and resources to earn the community's trust. My name is Nairobi Vives. I am the chair of the Albany Community Police Review Board. I want you all to know that day in and day out, we work tirelessly to bring our mission to fruition, which is to rebuild trust and accountability in the city. For decades, Albany has been trying to get this right we cannot get it right if we don't have the proper funding. We will continue to fight as we always have to make sure this community knows that their complaints are being independently uh, reviewed. But if we don't get the funding that we need, if we only get the 1% that we've been allocated in this budget, it significantly limits what we can do. 
Andy Kyer of the Capital District Working Families Party and Albany Justice Coalition spoke on the CPRB issue and on the second issue addressed by many commenters. With the people of Albany so forcefully supporting the expanded CPRB, it was shocking and disheartening to see the mayor's proposed budget for the CPRB ignore the needs set forth by the CPRB itself in order to implement the new law effectively. The amount requested by the CPRB is well in line with national standards and recommendations. As the representatives of the people of Albany, it's critical that the Common Council take steps to rectify the situation, ensuring the people's voice is heard and the CPRB is fully funded and on a path for success. Secondly, many of you are aware that the city of Albany is facing an eviction crisis of unprecedented proportions. The city's data indicates that more than 700 new evictions were filed during the third quarter of 2022, with more than 200 of them filed by the Albany Housing Authority against residents of public housing. It should go without saying that these families are facing eviction are amongst the most vulnerable residents of our city and are also in general the least economically equipped to afford legal representation in eviction court. Indeed, the city's data also indicates that less than 3% of tenants facing eviction this year have had legal representation in eviction court compared to more than 95% of landlords. You don't need to be a lawyer to know that's not fair. The city must take all necessary steps to ensure families can stay in their homes and have access to legal aid and representation when they are facing the perils of eviction court, and I urge the council to add funding to the budget for this purpose. Reverend Ibrahim Pedrinan also spoke in favor of funding for a right to counsel for tenants facing eviction. I'm the president of the American Postal Workers Union. Uh, I'm also the president of the Albany Labor Council, representing 40 union locals and 30,000 union members throughout Albany County. Many of you have heard me say that Albany is number one. Albany is the most union-dense county in the nation at 32.3%. Being the most union-dense county means that one-third of our workers have the protection of a union. They have a voice and a vote in their workplace. But while workers may be safe in their workplace because they have a union, many of them go home and become vulnerable because two-thirds of Albany, 65% of Albany, rents. And while tenant union organizing is ramping up, that still means tenants lack a voice and a vote in their own home. This means far too often workers go home from their secure union jobs and become vulnerable, vulnerable to the whim of the landlord, vulnerable of to the whim of a management company from some absentee corporation in a different state who just sees a bottom line and wants to profit off of tenants. Unions have the protection of just cause. Just cause is the ability of management to fire someone without due process. Tenants deserve the same right in good cause, which I am very proud that this body passed. Good job. Unions also have the protection of wine garden rights, the right to representation. Tenants deserve the protections of right to counsel. In a union town like Albany, workers and tenants deserve to be protected, deserve representation, deserve dignity, and deserve democracy.
My name is Allie Dettinger. I am a part-time staff member at United Tenants of Albany, and I am a second-year law student at Albany Law School. I just want to take a moment to thank the council um, for, for hearing us out, um, but also for being a bold council that cares a lot about tenants. Um, and I know that because this council, this room, was the first council in all of New York State to say a tenant shouldn't be evicted without cause. Um, and I just want to like, take a moment to acknowledge that, that um, precedent was set right here um, not too long ago. An advocate, an attorney, whoever it may be, it has a huge impact on a tenant's ability to either stay in their home or avoid homelessness. I know this because I did it all summer in Rochester as a law student. I represented over 100 tenants in eviction proceedings, and to my knowledge, not a single one of my clients became homeless. This program exists in Rochester, in Buffalo, in Ithaca, in Syracuse, several places in the Hudson Valley, and in New York City. I'm sorry to say that we don't have tenant attorneys like all the other big cities in this state does. My name is Canyon Ryan. I'm also the executive director of United Tenants of Albany, and I'm also here speaking as a community member and a renter in the city of Albany to voice my support for the city allocating funding to support increased access to counsel for tenants in eviction proceedings. If even one attorney was supported by the city and they saw one tenant per day, there would be a statistically significant impact in terms of tenant representation. Numerous studies have already demonstrated that tenants with even partial representation have a more than 50% increase in the likelihood that they remain housed. All of this is to say that there's no need for another study Studies have been conducted for decades to demonstrate the efficacy of tenant counsel in eviction court proceedings. It's cost effective, it's a preventative measure that will keep hundreds of families safely and stably housed together and secure. The Common Council is expected to give final approval of a 2023 budget this month. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. Thanks to Moses Nagel for that report on the 2023 city budget from Albany. Okay. On June 17th, on June 17th and 19th, 2022, Labor Notes held a significant conference of grassroots labor activists in Chicago. Labor Notes is a non-for-profit organization and network for rank and file union members and grassroots labor activists. Hudson Mohawk Magazine Network roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry covered the conference virtually in the, this labor segment, he shares audio excerpts of the presentation given by Bernie Sanders, United States Senator. This is part one of a two-part segment. Let me begin by thanking all of our speakers, Chris and Sean and Sarah and everybody else, let me thank all of you for being here because I know that many of you are in the forefront of the grassroots activism that we need to transform this country. So thank you for what you're doing. And let me thank Labor Notes. who year after year have been standing up for working families from one end of this country to the other. Labor Notes, thank you. 
gifts. What I want to do is to give you a brief look at where I think we are today. And the bad news is, and it's something that you are all familiar with, and that is that today our economic and political system is working great if you are a billionaire. It ain't working so great if you are working for a living. In fact, many of our working people are falling further and further behind. Today, we have in our nation, and what I'm telling you is you know, but many Americans don't know because the corporate media ain't telling them for obvious reasons. But you know that we have more income and wealth inequality today than at any time in the history of our country. We have more concentration of ownership than at any time in the history of our country. We have more corporate greed than at any time in the history of our country. And we have a political system that more than ever is dominated by super PACs and the billionaires who fund them in both political parties. That is, that is the economic and political reality of our time. And that is the reality which for the sake of working families across this country and for future generations, together we must and will change. Now CBS and NBC and the New York Times and Fox aren't going to tell you about corporate greed, so let me do it for them. Corporate greed is when two people, Mr. Musk and Mr. Bezos, that's right, own more wealth than the bottom 42% of our population. Corporate greed is when 1% own more wealth than the bottom 92%. And I'll really tell you what corporate greed is about. We are going through a terrible, terrible pandemic. We all know that. It has taken over a million lives in our country. So many people have become sick, have long COVID, etc. And during this period, when working people went out to work to keep the economy going, when 5,000 nurses died taking care of us, when grocery store workers and bus drivers and people in warehouses and people in factories died to keep the economy going, 700 billionaires increased their wealth during the pandemic by $2 trillion. That's corporate greed. That's right. Corporate greed is today 
about CEOs of major corporations making 350 times what their workers are making. Corporate greed is about, during the terrible war in Ukraine, during the breakdown of supply chains, large corporation after large corporation has been raising prices substantially as their profits are soaring. Corporate greed is about a rigged and corrupt tax system in which in a given year, billionaires do not pay a nickel in federal income tax. And when we talk, that is right, criminal is the right word. And when we talk about concentration of ownership, I want all of you to appreciate this. Today, in this country, there are three, one, two, three, Wall Street firms, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, that control assets of over $20 trillion, which is equivalent to the GDP of the United States of America. Three Wall Street firms control hundreds and hundreds of corporations all over our country and around the world. That's right, part of it. And when we talk about corporate greed, we're talking about drug companies raising their prices while one out of four Americans cannot afford the prescription drugs their doctors prescribe. And let me give you an example. I mean, it is so out of control that it really, literally is hard to believe. Give you an example. The CEO of Moderna recently received, got this, a $926 million golden parachute. Now, can you believe it? We are fighting and struggling to make sure that our people are vaccinated in this country and around the world. Federal government puts two and a half billion dollars into Moderna to develop a vaccine. And this guy walks away above and beyond his other stock with over $900 million in golden parachute. That is how corrupt and criminal the system is. Now that's what corporate greed is doing to consumers. Let me say a word about what it is doing to workers. During the last several years, my office has been involved in many, many strikes around this country. We stood with the UAW, who went, on, who went on strike in Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas. We stood with the United Steel Workers, who went on strike at Special Metals in West Virginia. 
We stood with bakery workers, bakery workers who went on strike at Kellogg's and Nabisco. We continue to stand with the United Mine Workers who are still on strike at Warrior Met. And we stood with UFCW who did a tremendous job taking on Kroger grocery stores in Colorado. And here is what I learned that I really did not fully appreciate before we got involved. And that is that in every instance of these strikes and many others, these strikes were provoked by corporations owned by large conglomerates who were making huge profits. This is not a moment when a company goes to Sean and say, look, you know, we're falling apart, our revenue is down, we need to sit down and talk. These are companies today that are making huge profits. And then they go, huge, that's the word. And then, then they go to their workers and they say, we want you to take mega pay raises and we want to make massive cuts to your health care benefits. That was Bernie Sanders speaking at the Labor Notes conference back in June and reported on by Willie Terry. Okay, great, great, great. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. And I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. You're, tu- you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Great, great. So if you like what you hear, and I know you do, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find us today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now, for our third segment, we have a special, special treat. And we are so blessed to have Dr. Marina Sorochinsky. She is an interdisciplinary scholar with a master's in forensic science, psychology, and PhD in psychology and law from Cooney. She is currently an assistant professor of criminal justice at St. John's University. Welcome, doctor. How are you? Thank you so much, and uh, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for uh, stopping in. And um, how's the family? How's the kids? Oh, they're wonderful. They're a handful as usual. (laughs) Great, great, great. So uh, let me dig right in then. So why the focus on wrongful convictions in serial cases specifically? Um, So we recently, myself and um, actually Dr. Matthew Johnson has uh, first started this research in looking at and identified some of the cases uh, that uh, there's basically a trend where in, in a lot of series we find, well, actually a lot of wrongful convictions, proven wrongful convictions are actually uh, cases that were part of a series. So in other words, an individual gets wrongfully convicted for a crime that is actually part of somebody else's 
series of crimes. So not just a single crime, but a whole series. And it's a big problem because um, when somebody gets wrongfully convicted, the true perpetrator remains out. And okay. so they actually have a chance to continue with their series. They actually have a chance to um, to victimize more people. So it is even more of a problem than um, somebody who gets wrongfully convicted for a single crime where, you know, there's no continuation. So um, it's it's a really important um, uh, topic, I think. Okay, great. Uh, we got a lot to uh, unpack, so I want to keep mm -hmm. it moving here. What are those investigative challenges? How are they different from other cases uh, of WC, wrongful convictions? So in... Um, in serial cases, the investigative challenges are um, particular because in addition to regular, you know, understanding, figuring out who done it, uh, the challenge is uh, determining the linkage. So linkage blindness is part of why somebody gets wrongfully convicted in the serial crime, because when if the investigators didn't uh, figure out quickly enough that this crime is actually not a one-off offense, but instead part of a series, and they investigate it as a, as a one-off offense. Okay. Um, they um, basically are running a risk of completely um, kind of taking the investigation in the wrong direction. Okay. You might want to tell uh, the people in the household that you are live on air because we can hear them very clearly in the background. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. That's a, look, this is a working house. We totally understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, who are your students, and do they know about your wrongful convictions before um, they come into your class? Sorry, I have a baby, so right, it's, so, it's, listen, it's always a you, you get a free pass, you hear me, Doc? All right. So as I was saying, who are your students, and do they know about your wrongful convictions before they come to your class? So, uh, because I teach in a criminal justice program, my, most of my students are planning to go into either criminal justice administration or um, continue on their, their studies in law school. Uh, so these are basically our future, the future of our legal and criminal justice system. And uh, surprisingly enough, very many of them don't know nearly enough about wrongful conviction, even even though it's been out on, in the media quite a quite a bit uh, in the recent years. Um, many of them find it very surprising when I uh, discuss those issues and and find it uh, you know eye opening mm -hmm. um, the degree to which our system is is not doing. Uh, everything in, in its power to, okay. to rectify the wrongs as well. So how does teaching about it help the innocent movement? Um, well, what difference do you think you're making? or I, I think it's really making a difference in that I'm infiltrating the minds of the, of the incoming young generation of professionals. So well they said, can't, well said. Once, once they know it, they can't unknow it. So when they get into their careers and, and become the new DAs and become the new attorneys and or, uh, you know, criminal justice administrators, they have that background. They understand uh, the responsibility that they hold 
you know, for, for the people and for, for doing the right thing, for doing their job right, because in, in many cases of wrongful convictions, if, if just one person actually did their work in exactly the way that they should, it wouldn't have happened. Great, great. Um, so you're also having students work with exonerees or recently released wrongfully convicted individuals. Can you tell us about that? How's that going? Um, so yeah, so some of my students in one of my classes, forensic psychology class, um, the students we uh, this is a, a collaborative project with the Jeffrey Deskvik Foundation. Jeffrey, I know you are very uh, familiar with uh, with him. Absolutely. Um, and so we uh, collaborate together on helping, basically pairing up students with some, with exonerees and or, or people who are working on their exonerations, but they're recently. Uh, come out uh, on different aspects of re-entry uh, process. So helping them with technology, helping them with social media, finding out how to best, you know, create their profile on, on the internet, because there are a lot of those people have spent many, many years uh, behind bars. So they're behind on a lot of the, you know, modern, uh, modern stuff. So uh, basically that's, that's what the, the project is about. Great. So um, what impact does that have on the students? Because I know it's really making a positive impact, but I hope, you know, so what do you think? What's... I've, I've, I wasn't even expecting the degree to which it impacts students. So the, the, the reflections, the, the essays that I got from students who have completed the work um, mention life-changing experience and eye-opening realizations that they got from from working with uh, those individuals and and say that it's re reignited their passion to uh, to be to become a voice for the voiceless and and help make our system better so it really uh proven my point that this is the you know the difference that it makes with uh getting into the younger minds and and getting them while they're still fresh and able to to get into the system with that mindset of wanting to do the change because Great. change really happens from the bottom up so i want to wrap up with this um what are your plans for the future and how are you planning to expand this work so um actually i'm really excited to have the university very much on board with um, these uh, these initiatives, and we are currently in the process of um, establishing a center within St. John's University that will focus on a variety of issues, uh, helping exonerees as well as uh, just people who have spent uh, you know uh, a long lengthy time behind bars and. Um, uh, so working with, with uh, past prisoners, helping them with educational opportunities Great. and so on and so forth. Okay. I got to wrap up. I just want to say, Dr. Sorachinsky, it was a plum pleasing pleasure having you as a guest and uh, appreciate all the good work you're doing. Continue to let your light shine. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. And don't be a stranger. All right. You're part of the. Well, uh, I'll, I, I look forward to seeing you as my guest speaker on Monday. Thank you. Oh, thank fantastic. You. Uh, you just <laughs> you just shocked my or, or surprised my engineer. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I, and I look forward to it. And you are, like I said, part of the Triple E's Education Empowerment Entrepreneur Family. OK, thank you. God bless you. All right. Thank you so much.
Next up, we have we head to Troy Public Library with Bria Barthel for this month's book suggestions for young people. Hi, this is Bria Barthel, and today I'm joined once again by Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services for Troy Public Library. Hi, Bria, and it's good to be here. It happens to be that November is National Picture Book Month, and I've got a, a couple picture books I'm excited to talk about. And it's also Native American Heritage Month, and I've got a couple books that talk about the experience of Native peoples, which uh, I'm also very excited about. The first book I have, it's called My First Day, and the authors are Quang and Lean. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but it's L-I-E-N. Let's take a look at it. Okay, so this is about a boy who has grown up on the river Mekong, and it's about his uh, journey to his first day of school. And this is set in Vietnam, I take it? Thereabouts. And so I'll just show you some of the, some of the illustrations. They're just stunning. There are these golden tones that peek through these lush illustrations. And so they depict this small child, and he's just paddling through a series of stunning landscapes. And you'll notice, like, for example, the night scenes. Um, are full of detail, and there is much more happening that we don't see. And throughout the story, there's a python that's lurking underneath the surface. And in several of the illustrations, you can actually see him or her. So it just takes you on a journey, and you just see this small child against the landscape of underwater and waves. But the colors are just extraordinary. So deep blues, deep greens, and huge pictures of waves sort of engulfing the boat almost. That's great. I'll just read to you a little bit. The jungle calls your name, asks you to be brave. Still, fear slithers in like a python. But what you know can make a difference, turn the unfamiliar into family. I get to trace the edges of my path, do it for myself, write my name across the blackboard of the river. And she just turned the page, and now it's the sun is coming out, and there's huge birds in the sky. I suggest this book for anybody. The artwork is incredible. Yes, and you know, it's funny, but it kind of reminds me of Thomas Cole's um, Voyage of Life. You, it starts out all right, and then it gets a little dark, and uh, then it's, uh, it's beautiful and and happy and light, but again, you know, the illustrations are why we love picture books so much. They really move the story forward. That's beautiful. And what's your next book? The next book I have is called Kapunamuk, and it's Weacham's Thanksgiving Story. This is written by Native authors Danielle Greendeer, Anthony Perry, and Alexis Bunton. And this is about Thanksgiving from a First Peoples perspective, and it's actually the perspective of the Wampanoag people. And the illustrations are soft, but colorful. I believe that's watercolor. And so it's a story of children asking, Native children asking their grandmother to tell them the story of Thanksgiving. And interestingly enough, it's from the perspective of 
Thanksgiving, what actually happened, and it's actually considered a day of mourning among Native peoples. Um, because unfortunately, when the colonists came, they brought war and disease. But I'll read to you just a little bit. One frosty fall morning, a long time ago, a large boat with white sails approached the shore. Seagulls circled above the boat, squawking, new people are coming, new people are coming. Hearing the news, Weachum stretched the weary, her weary ears toward the sky. Who are these new people, she asked. And this is the story of the first Thanksgiving. And this has a beautiful palette with turquoise that would be appropriate for natives. Of course, not in this area. But thank you. That's great. And what's your next one? Oh, the ages for that, I should, I should mention, are um, three to seven. So it's a picture book for um, younger children. And the next book I have is In the Name of Emmett Till. And this is a collection of engaging two stories. And each one is a portrait of activists and civil rights leaders um, from the 50s and 60s. And it begins with the murder of Emmett Till and how his lynching energized the civil rights movement. But um, I was just kind of blown away by, by this book. Um, it includes a gripping account from a nearby witness who did not see but heard his torture and killing as it occurred. And it is just chilling and powerful. And uh, it's like a punch to the gut when you read this. And with that in mind, uh, what grade level or reading level would this be for? This would be for um, middle, middle school students. So I would say grade 7 and up, probably 7 to 10th uh, grade. Is that a new book? Uh, it is. It's a, it's a new book that uh, we, we just got in. And uh, as I said, it's, it's compelling. Great. Thank you. And your final book, I think? This is uh, another book written by Native Americans, and uh, it's called We Are Still Here, Native American Truths Everyone Should Know. And this is an informational picture book, um, I would say ages 7 to 10. And it's in a format, um, the format of it is such that each student gives a presentation of milestones in history of Native American people. Um, and this takes place on Indigenous Peoples Day, which um, we used to refer to as Columbus Day. Um, but it talks about um, some, of the, some of the things that happen, including um, concepts like assimilation, allotment, termination, relocation, but all things that happened to Native peoples. So there's also a glossary of terms, which is always great, and has a timeline of the beginning uh, of colonial expansion, and it continues through modern times. So up until recently, there's a lot of valuable information, but it's also important because it shows um, everything from the native perspective, which unfortunately um, we don't know a lot about because it's not taught in schools or hasn't been. The refrain on each page is, we are still here, we are still here. Um, I'll read a little bit. 
This is about the Indian New Deal. The US government tried to help many people during the Great Depression, but its leaders saw how badly Native people suffered compared to others. And knowing that, Congress crafted a series of new laws that protected tribal culture, arts, and crafts. It allowed Native languages and traditions to be taught in schools and set aside money to buy back lost tribal lands. Changed most tribes' governing systems to operate more like the US government, which was not always helpful. Um, so that's maybe one of the more positive things that are mentioned in the book, but it also talks about um, the treaties not being honored. You have the whole concept of relocation and then what happened to Native peoples in Indian uh, children's schools. So these are all wonderful selections that are available at the Troy Public Library, and I suspect are probably each of them banned in some other locations. I would expect so, unfortunately. Okay, and you've got some activities coming up, not just books, but activities. What's on the horizon? Art, art, and more art. We have Dinovember, um, so we're celebrating dinosaurs this month. And who doesn't love dinosaurs? We have take and make kits um, for all ages, and kids can do some dinosaur crafts, and there's some factual information to be found as well. Um, and then we've got a watercolor workshop. Actually, we have two coming up. Uh, one is for teens, and that's on November 29th in the evening. It's a watercolor paint and sip. The other is a wonderful water workshop, and that's going to be on November 30th in the evening, and that's for kids ages 7 to 12. And for both workshops, you do not need any experience, um, but you do need to register so we can make sure we have enough supplies. So all the supplies are provided, people don't need to bring anything with them? No, just their imaginations. And then the other event we're having is a gingerbread fun extravaganza, which is next month um, on Wednesday, December 14th. It's an after school program from four to five. And we're gonna sip hot cocoa, decorate cookies and gingerbread houses. And this is for ages three to 17. I'm trying to imagine what a three-year-old will do with hot chocolate and gumdrops and the gingerbread. should be an interesting time for all. Yes, it's always fun. And that's at the Troy Public Library main branch, 100 Second Street in Troy. And the website for more information? Is thetroylibrary.org. Thanks a lot, Carol. See you in December. Great. See you then. We have more library stories for this month by Bria Barthel coming soon and find that full list of books with this segment on our website. Okay. Rabbi Linda Moskin is a lifelong artist and her work will be shown in a solo exhibition at the Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga Springs. Producer Marsha Lazarus interviewed her about her work and the meaning behind the show titled... Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Marsha Lazarus, and I'm sitting with Rabbi Linda Motzkin. Rabbi Linda and her husband, Rabbi Jonathan Rubenstein, have served as co-rabbis at Temple Sinai in downtown Saratoga Springs since 1986. I also understand, Rabbi Linda, that you are a Torah scribe, an author, a parchment maker, and a lifelong artist, that your artwork will be shown in a solo exhibit at the Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga Springs 
beginning this Sunday, November 13th, and will run through December 19th. And that the exhibit is called Between Heaven and Earth. So how did this name come to be? I like the phrase. It's actually the title of one of the pieces in the exhibit. There's Hebrew calligraphy in all of my art pieces. In that particular piece, the quote comes from a passage in the Talmud. Uh, it's a passage that's well known to anybody that's sort of explored the Jewish mystical tradition. This is a passage in which four rabbinic sages engage in mystical exploration and have different consequences as a result of engaging this mystical in this mystical exploration. It doesn't turn out so well for all of them. Uh, one dies, one goes mad, one becomes an apostate, and only one is able to assimilate what the, he has learned and manage to um, continue to, to live and thrive. Um, that's Rabbi Akiva, well-known rabbinic sage. The one who loses his mind is Benzoma. And the Talmudic passage describes a little bit Benzoma Benzoma's madness. And he's, you know, the teacher sort of asks, where are you? Um, where have you gone? And he says that he's contemplating the separation of the waters. If you know your Bible, you know, the second day of creation in Genesis is when God separates the waters below from the waters above and creates the separation between heaven and earth. And um, what, uh, Benzoma going mad says is, there's only a span of three fingers width between them. This is the quote that I use in the art piece. Um, when he says this, Rabbi Joshua concludes that Benzoma has gone outside, that he's just departed this realm, that he's lost his mind. But I actually loved this idea that we think of the distance between heaven and earth as being this huge gap that's so insurmountable. And there's something so provocative and I think wonderful about asserting that the distance between heaven and earth is actually really tiny. It's only the span of three fingers. And I think about how it's sometimes said that there's a fine line between a genius and a madman, that a madman may actually be someone who is just more in tuned to um, brilliant insights like a genius, but not able to express them in a way that the rest of us can understand. So we just think that they're crazy. And I think that there's um, something about this notion that heaven and earth is, are not hugely separate, but actually really close. Um, that I find very compelling. And so I used that piece, um, you know, I developed that idea in that particular piece, which is in the exhibit. And then sort of thinking more broadly about that, um, I think that this idea of living between heaven and earth and trying to navigate and understand what it is to live in a realm that isn't the highest and the holiest that's down here in the realm of the material and the human and trying to live a life that can be as full and sacred and beautiful and holy um, 
seems to me in some way that idea encapsulates not just everything I do in my artwork, but everything I've done in my life as a rabbi and my life as a religiously observant, spiritually sensitive Jew. The Jewish tradition um, is, uh, in the Jewish tradition, there is this idea that we are here on this earth to do what we can to make things better, right? We have mitzvot, we have commandments that are supposed to enrich our lives, enrich the lives of those around us and help make the world a better place. And there's another passage in the Talmud from Pirkei Avot that says that yours is not to complete the task, but neither are you free to desist from it. So each of us operates somewhere in that realm between heaven and earth, trying to do what we can to reach upward toward heaven while living grounded here in this material re reality that is flawed and broken and imperfect and not heavenly. But each of us can do something to reach upwards. So I think both of those ideas, the idea of a flawed reality in which we live as we strive for something better, and also the idea that the gap between what we envision and where we are is hugely insurmountable, but maybe only three finger breadths wide. I find both of those very compelling. And so when I was trying to come up with the idea of a you know, the title for this exhibit, someone um, said to me, oftentimes the exhibit is the title of one of the pieces in the exhibit. I thought, ah, between heaven and earth. This idea, do you feel that this permeates your work in general? Yes. And in part, that's because, partly, of course, it's because I'm a rabbi and this is my orientation to the world. And in part, it's because of the material I'm using. All of my Hebrew calligraphic artwork is done on parchment, on animal skins that I couldn't use for the Torah project because they are blemished, because they are torn, because they are imperfect. You know, for a Torah, I need to be able to cut a rectangle that is smooth and clean and doesn't have holes and doesn't have scars and doesn't have deer ticks and is, you know, um, pristine for writing a panel of Torah. In the process of making all this parchment for the Torah that I'm writing, I wind up having a lot of pieces of parchment that are, um, misshapen and scarred and blemished and weird. And that's the material I use for my artwork. So the material itself is something that is flawed, that is um, uh, scarred, that in some cases is bloody or has blood stains, but through my artwork is transformed or uplifted or again part of this reaching from this realm of imperfect earth that we live on to something higher so that the the material itself of the artwork I do um, resonates with that theme as well the beauty is that we can take these flaws and blemishes and imperfections and make something beautiful even sacred even holy out of them 
And I understand that a portion of the proceeds from the sale of your work will be going towards the funding of the Bread and Torah Project. Yes. So um, the Bread and Torah Project is a combination of um, Rabbi Jonathan and my passions and interests. So his is a baker and mine is a scribe and artist. And uh, we developed Bread and Torah as an educational enterprise to share um, hands-on Jewish activities and teaching around bread making and uh, scribal arts, Jewish you know, physical and spiritual sustenance um, based on a verse that comes from the Talmud. If there's no bread, there's no Torah. If there's no Torah, there's no bread, that you need both physical and spiritual sustenance. So that's where the name bread and Torah comes from. And so through bread and Torah, we have done um, lots of teaching, travel to different communities to share our knowledge and expertise in these areas. We've also, and this relates to the sale of the artwork. My husband started this slice of heaven bakery at the temple and uh, proceeds from the sale of baked goods through the bakery have gone to charitable clauses, funds from the sale of my artwork similarly um, will be directed toward uh, charitable causes, including support of anti-poverty initiatives, social justice, environmental programs, both in our local Saratoga community and beyond. And the show will be up till December 19th. Okay. And the opening on Sunday is from on the 13th from two to four. And the number to call if you want to schedule an appointment, uh, 518- 2900660 actually they asked that you text Belinda Colon That was Marsha Lazarus uh, talking about the exhibition which begins Sunday November 13th <laughs> Opening reception from 4 to 2 to 4 p.m. All right and that's our show folks we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk magazine I'm your host H Bosch Jr. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Moses Nagel, Willie Terry, Bria Barthel, Marsha Lazarus, and my incredible co-host, H. Bosch Jr. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And remember, we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at mediasanctuary.org or mediasanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and your favorite podcast pro, uh, platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time, God bless, and may heaven continue to smile upon you.